0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are
1: waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. The podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Theatrical Genius of Tommy Toon. <laughs> This episode is made possible in part by our Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club producer-level members, Stephen and Paula Reynolds. Thank you, Stephen and Paula, for your generous support of the mission of this podcast. And I invite every listener of Broadway Nation to join our Backstage Pass Club, and I'll have more information later in this episode on exactly how you, too, can become a member. Today, my guest is Kevin Winkler, who is the author of a new book titled Everything is Choreography The Musical Theater of Tommy Toon. Kevin's much acclaimed and award winning first book was released in 2018 and was titled Big Deal. Bob Fosse, and Dance in the American Musical. And you may have seen Kevin as an on-screen commentator in the acclaimed documentary Merely Marvelous, The Dancing Genius of Gwen Verdon. I was fascinated to read Kevin's terrific new book, especially since I arrived in New York just as Tommy Toon's career as a choreographer and director was kicking off. And as a result, I had the tremendous privilege of seeing firsthand every one of the Broadway and off-Broadway Tommy Toon productions that Kevin covers in the book. Unfortunately, there was some construction work going on in Kevin's building as we recorded this, so once in a while during the interview you may hear some odd noises. I began our recent conversation by asking Kevin about his two previous careers prior to becoming an author that have made him uniquely and quite unusually qualified to write books about Broadway's great, groundbreaking director-choreographers. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us today on Broadway Nation. David, it's great
0: to be here. Delighted to be here. I started out as a dancer. I was a professional dancer in New York for oh, about 12 or 13 years. Then in my mid30s, I realized I was not going to play a long game as a chorus dancer. So I ended up going back to graduate school. I became a librarian. I worked at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts for many, many years and uh, retired from that and then kind of fell into this third career writing writing about dance, about choreographers, merges a couple of loves of mine. Dance, certainly, first and foremost, but also my joy in doing research, archival research, really digging in to the historical data to help bolster my understanding of the work of people like Bob Fosse and now Tommy
1: Toon. Well, you're the only dancer librarian that I know. (laughs) It's worked out very, very well in terms of this third career, as you say, in merging those two things together to write about these amazing artists. Thank you. The book about Fosse has been much acclaimed. What inspired you then to move from Fossey to Tommy Toon?
0: Some of the most delightful moments I've experienced in the theater have been at shows that were either choreographed and or directed and or performed by Tommy Toon. And I had just come to think over the last, I don't know, X number of years that he had become somewhat undervalued as an artist and a creative force in the theater. And I know that sounds strange to say because he has had had many, many theatrical successes. He's won a boatload of Tony Awards, received a Lifetime Achievement Tony Award. But people tend to have short memories, and he hasn't had a show on Broadway in a number of years. I think he had just become one of those people that was certainly not forgotten, but his achievements had been somewhat forgotten. I thought that a book that would do a deep dive into his artistic life would fill a void. I was also really kind of shocked, in a way, when I began doing research to find how little his career has been documented by historians and commentators about the American musical. He doesn't seem to loom very large, and I thought that was a real mistake because he's had so many great accomplishments in the theater.
1: He's clearly one of the great director choreographers of all time, but I agree with you. He doesn't seem to have a profile. Certainly young people today have very little knowledge of who he is or what he did. Do you think that's because the great shows that he did, his great successes, have mostly not lived on past? those original productions.
0: In a way, a lot of his shows have not been revived. Certainly not like Michael Bennett with Dreamgirls and A Chorus Line, or Fosse with Chicago and Pippin, Gower Champion with Hello, Dolly, 42nd Street, shows like that. One of his greatest successes, Nine, was given a fairly mediocre film adaptation that I think really kind of tamped down interest in that property, which I think is a shame. So for all of those reasons, yes, I think those shows have kind of receded in people's memory. But I have to tell you, Toon is very much alive in my mind through his influence and inspiration to a younger generation of director choreographers. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. I mean, you can really trace threads of his work in the work of people like Jerry Mitchell, Casey Nicola Susan Stroman, Jeff Calhoun. Most of these people I just named worked with Tommy early on in their careers as dancers, assistants, associates. His influence is felt, even if audiences don't really recognize it.
1: One of the main threads of this podcast is the connection between the artists throughout the history of the Broadway musical. And I very much appreciate that in your book, you talk about even people like Ned Wayburn and some of the choreographers from the 20s and the 30s who indirectly influenced Tommy Toon. It's really one of the few art forms that's handed down from person to person in a chain that you can document partly because almost every choreographer starts out as a dancer working for somebody else. So it literally is an apprenticeship for the people who are interested in that. Let's go back to the beginning, back to the origin story of Tommy Toon. What is it in this unlikely world of Texas that he comes from that creates this director, choreographer, performer? You're right.
0: He's from Texas. He was born in Wichita Falls. And when he was a young boy, he and his family moved to just outside Houston. He started dance lessons very early. I think he started taking dance lessons at the age of five, he was very fortunate in that his family was very supportive of his interest in dance that's a big deal for a young boy from, I won't say the middle of nowhere, but growing up in an environment that you might think is somewhat less enlightened than it could be. But he uh, started dance lessons very early, studied ballet. He was exposed to live theater at a a very young age. He went to performances with his parents. He has talked about being influenced by touring companies of Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, Ballet Theater, the precursor of American Ballet Theater, and getting to see plays and musicals in Houston. He um, began putting on plays and shows little reviews in his backyard and he called them patio reviews where he'd gather up the neighborhood kids and they just sort of put on a show he said i was always just naturally bossy and i just told them what to do and they did so he has lived a life very much steeped in dance and theater and performance from a very early age
1: So he was directing and choreographing from childhood, basically.
0: (laughs) Basically, yes. The future Tony winner was staging these reviews on his patio in the backyard. Yes.
1: How does that lead to heading to New York to pursue this as a career?
0: The other thing that I think is interesting about Toon is so many of the people who he followed behind, people like Michael Bennett, Bob Fosse, Gower Champion, Jerome Robbins, none of them went to college. Robbins took a few classes at NYU, Champion and Fosse graduated from high school. Michael Bennett dropped out of school when he was 16 to go on the road and dance. But Toon went to college as a theater major and then went to graduate school at the University of Houston, getting his master's in theater and directing. And so he was steeped in design and the mechanics of theater from an academic perspective. And he did summer stock. He made his professional debut working at Dallas Summer Musicals in a production of West Side Story, for instance. Toon's always been very generous in talking about the people who influenced him and pushed him forward. He's very generous in giving credit to his early dance teachers, for instance. And one of the people that he credits with bringing him to New York is his childhood friend, Phil Osterman, who he grew up with in the Houston area. And Osterman became a director and a producer in New York and was back on a visit to Houston. And as Osterman said, I threw his ass in the car and drove him to New York. (laughs) He was scared to death. And Osterman really pushed him to move to New York, told him what trade papers to get, how to look for the auditions, where to go. And through that tune, got his first job, his first day in New York, if you can believe that. It's all true, of course, but it's almost like a fairy tale.
1: I'm sure when you're in the actual experience of it, he felt like a struggling artist like everybody else. But compared to many other stories, it seems like he just sort of immediately had success. It was a pretty easy entree. Right. Yeah. I was very taken in your book to learn that he was an intellectual to a certain extent. Although you wouldn't think of that when you think of Tommy Toon as a personality or as a persona, that intellectual rigor is actually very evident, especially in all his early shows. They really come from an avant-garde sort of approach in many ways. Again, which I think is something people don't appreciate or understand readily about Tommy Toon.
0: I think you're absolutely right. He approached his work from an intellectual
1: standpoint. I happened to see The Club, his first show in New York, And that was a very heady show in its own way. It was incredibly entertaining. I still can see it. I can picture that show and especially the ticker tape sequence. But as thrillingly entertaining as it was, it was actually a very smart, very sort of intellectual avant-garde approach to making theater.
0: I think he set a pattern with that show because that was his first show as a director in New York. He really set a pattern in that he worked very closely with the writer Eve Merriam, whose idea it was to put the show together using found material, jokes and limericks and songs from the turn of the century, and making them a review. And he really developed that material with Marian, with musical director, and very, very much so with the cast, and created something that had a theatrical integrity to it in a way that it really didn't have when he got the raw material. He has such taste in terms of stagecraft, in understanding how physicality communicates to an audience, especially with that show, with the cast of all women playing all men. And he worked with the cast on conceiving a kind of unique body language. They weren't trying to masquerade as men. They were women playing men. That juxtaposition and that tension was one of the things that made that show so unique. That's also true with the other off-Broadway show that he did, Cloud Nine, the Carol Churchill play. And I really think his direction of that play really introduced Churchill to American audiences. She's such a terrific writer, so unique, she would have found success anyway. But his direction of Cloud Nine really brought an emotional intensity to the material. I've seen revivals of the play since then, but his production had an emotional intensity that I've never seen equaled.
1: I agree. It's such a terrific production. And both of those shows were dealing with issues of gender, dealing with issues of race, with economic disparity, all those kinds of things. And then from a theatrical standpoint, the Traverse staging of the club and the way those shows were put on the stage, I think audiences today would think, well, that's cutting edge for now. And this is now what? 45. This, 45 years ago. Exactly.
0: You're so right. He was dealing with issues of gender, sexuality, race, economic inequalities, and so forth that were very au then, and they're certainly au today.
1: And it just shows, I teach a course at the University of Washington, and my students are always surprised to see things go backwards. We've already been down this path, and now we have to go down it again, unfortunately, in so many ways. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
1: So he starts with the club and Cloud Nine was next or Cloud Nine was after Whorehouse.
0: The club was running. It was a huge hit. It ran for about a year and a half, close to two years. While the club was running, he was approached about joining the creative team of the best little whorehouse in Texas. It was the nicest little whorehouse you ever saw. It lay about a mile down this old dirt road and if you just happened to stumble on it, you couldn't help but notice that the barns were painted, the fences were up, And you might think to yourself, why folks that live there might just do to run the river with. Oh, the little house lay in a green Texas glade where the trees were as cool as fresh lemonade. Soft summer wind had a trace of perfume and a fan was turning in every room. 20 fans returning they were turning 20 fans returning in every room fever's were a
1: burning they were burning and they had to have a way to cool down
0: that show had originally been developed at the Actors studio where Peter Masterson who's the director of the show was a member he and his wife Carlin Glenn who played the lead in the show they were both members and so it was done at the actor's studio and Universal Pictures and a producer named Stevie Phillips picked it up for a commercial production the consensus was the material was terrific it was rich and uh, flavorful but things were missing in terms of movement and as someone said to me the wow factor was missing for a musical and that's when he joined it the show was done off broadway and then moved to broadway he really infused it with some musical comedy brightness but what he really did was he made it bigger than the show was originally
1: and this football game has been a real stem just as the experts thought it would now as the gladiators collect themselves during this timeout, let's spend a few special moments with a bunch of kids as American as the 4th of July and as refreshing as Country Rain.
0: For instance, one of the famous numbers is the Angelette March, which is a delightful drill team number.
1: There they are, the fabled Texas Aggie Angelettes. As fine a bouquet of long-stammed American beauties as you will find.
0: One of the women I interviewed for the book said when we were first rehearsing it, it was just some funny lines that Larry L. King wrote. It was supposed to be kind of in a blackout. It was commentary for a football game. And she said, Tommy got the idea that they would create a drill team number, a dance number. They'd have us moving around and dancing on stage. We would spout these lines, these funny lines.
1: Hi there, sports fans. I'm talking with High Lachieve Charlene Green of the Fable Tech saggy angelettes. We're going to find out a little about the wonderful lives of these
0: wonderful precision girls. Most of you girls are beauty queens, isn't that right? Oh, this is very true. Well, I myself have been Miss Cookin' Oil Concentrate, Miss High Heel pump Miss Vocational Educational Opportunity, Miss T.I.
1: Benefit. Just super wonderful. Miss Medical Alcohol, Miss TV Dinner, and Miss Mistaken I know you girls must have high ideals and look up to people who embody those qualities you most admire. Will you tell us quickly who are your three all-time great American heroes?
0: Oh, Jesus. That's one, now name two more. i back to you, Bob. And then she said, but there are only six of us. She said it didn't feel right. And he got the idea to use these life-size sex dolls and put one on either side of each girl. And so suddenly, I think eight girls became 24 girls through so this very, very clever and really theatrically ingenious approach to the number that's just one example of the kind of theatrical thinking and humor that he brought to that show
1: in addition to it being theatrical and adding a dance element it also underlined the satire he was mm-hmm. always focusing on the story and trying to augment that element of Whorehouse. This was a satirical piece.
0: And so this just underscored the critique of prostitution and selling entertainment with bodies and so forth. It's a sophisticated approach to musical staging. One other thing I should mention about Poorhouse is that he was masterful in creating what I would call conceptual staging, where the concept of the number is really more important than the actual steps. The steps actually are secondary. And he was a master of a practice that he coined a term for, that I use in the book called The Gazintas. He says, director choreographers go for seamlessness. He said, we don't just play a scene, sing a song, do a dance. Play a scene, sing a song, do a dance. Sort of the George Abbott model, for lack of a better example. He said, we've tried to mix things in and make it seamless so that one thing goes into another thing. This goes into that, that goes into this. The Gazintas. A perfect example of that in Whorehouse is the Aggie dance, where the football players, after the Angelette number, the winning team is seen in their locker room being Congratulated and being told that they're going to be treated to a night at the Chicken Ranch whorehouse because they won the game. We're going to
1: walk and stop.
0: and singing and changing out of their football uniforms into cowboy hats and boots and shirts and so forth. And as they dance, the dance takes them as they travel from the locker room, from the football stadium to the whorehouse. This is all done on stage without moving any scenery. And at the end of the number, after they finished a tour de force dance number, They are there at the Chicken Ranch, and the girls suddenly appear upstairs, out of the sides and so forth. No scenery involved, lighting changes and so forth. Everything was done with bodies, with movement, and with imagination. That's as pure an example of a gazenta as you can find.
1: And really the hallmark of the great director-choreographers of this era. Almost all of them with a bare stage, a spectacular bare stage. All those shows of the 1970s, most of Tommy Toon's shows, are done in a way that we just don't see anymore. That's almost gone and forgotten.
0: Yes, indeed. Sometimes I go to a musical today, I will mention no names, um, (laughs) and I think, where did all this scenery come from? People are jumping around and the scenery's flying in and out. And When I wrote the book on Fosse, I would argue to the death that he was the ultimate minimalist. But having written this book about Toon, I think Toon's right up there yeah. with them. And I think the greatest of the director choreographers are right up there as minimalists because they have that in common. They would rather get their effects through the movement of human bodies than acres of scenery.
1: You quote Tommy Toon a couple times in the book. One time you say that he saw all of his shows as ballets. Explain what he meant by that. I think it's tied into what we're just talking about, isn't it?
0: Indeed, yes. The title for the book comes directly from Toon. Toon says that everything is choreography. Everything you do on stage is choreography. If you just walk across the stage, pick up a telephone, anything, all of that is choreography. He's been very influenced by ballet, by works by people like Anthony Tudor, to convey the essence of a scene, the essence of an exchange through movement alone. He said, if I can get the same effect with two or three gestures, why do I need a dozen gestures? Less is more. It brings a kind of clarity to the staging that audiences appreciate
1: i also remember you quoting him as talking about the mega musicals of the british invasion and they were substituting scenery for choreography
0: and you know he he's not disparaging them actually he says he loves phantom of the opera but he said they'd get their choreographic effects from scenery he called them scenic choreography he said i'd rather get the same effects with
1: bodies exactly one thing i wanted to go back to when you talk about the aggie number That's also underlying the satire and the hypocrisy of the show because the beefcake aspect of that number, just like the Angelettes, is showing up the hypocrisy of closing down this whorehouse and yet using sex to sell everything else.
0: Indeed. He said these football players make their living through their bodies just the way the women at the whorehouse do. There's an intellectual underpinning to what he was doing, certainly.
1: And I think sometimes the show business of it and the fabulousness of it covered up the fact that this was happening, although I think subliminally those messages were coming through.
0: I agree. I think subliminally that message is conveyed, but the show business of it, the theatricality of it, looms very large over it.
1: Yeah. Whorehouse, I think, is one of the shows that's very misremembered because of the movie, not quite capturing yeah. what the original show was about. And again, it hasn't been revived, so most people have never seen that original intention that came behind that show that I remember as being one of the funniest shows I ever saw, one of the most dazzlingly staged shows I ever saw, and yet so simple, and also one of the most satirical and thought-provoking shows in many ways.
0: Yeah, and it had a real homey atmosphere to it, beyond the show-busy aspects, beyond the satirical elements to it. It had a, a da- down-home flavor, a quality to it that was really irresistible. And of course, it ran for over four years.
1: Yeah, amazing. One of the biggest hits ever. But again, it hasn't remained in our heads that way.
0: I think the movie version really coarsened the material and i also i I had this conversation with a couple of the women that i interviewed for the book and i said could whorehouse be revived today and i'm not sure the material is certainly high quality it's certainly a better show than lots of things that do get revived i think today a humorous look at prostitution even as big-hearted and as satiric as the material is i think is a bit of a tough sell today
1: yeah the idea of the Happy Hooker is a little hard for us to grasp onto.
0: Even though those women are humanized and they are clearly not the villains in the piece. Hey,
1: maybe I'll dye my hair. Maybe I'll move somewhere. Maybe I'll get...
0: The Holy Rollers and the Crusaders, who are the villains, I think it would be a difficult sell today. I think. And that's a shame because the material is terrific, the score is wonderful.
1: Don't go away, Broadway Nation will be back right after this short break with our discussion of A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine and Tommy Tune's incredible staging of the musical Nine. I'll be fine. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These no fuss, no muss meals and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50 as in Broadway Nation. BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while you're Subscription is active. Do it now. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy.
1: a colossal architectural sensation. From the plush of your seat in the Grauman's Chinese Theater, life can be as plush as your imagination. So if pure entertainment, So this leads him into what eventually results in a day in Hollywood, a night in the Ukraine but he sort of gets there through a weird path. It starts out to be a different show in a way, at least a lot of the concepts that end up in that show.
0: Yeah. In the summer and fall of 1979, he choreographed a show called Double Feature that was directed by Mike Nichols. And that started a very productive working relationship and a friendship between Nichols and Toon. The show was about two couples, two married couples who cope with issues in their marriage and their lives by imagining what iconic movie stars would do in their position. There were two people who were the dancing ensemble, the chorus, and the scenic designer, Tony Walton, created at the top of the stage something that he called the ankle stage, so that these two dancers could appear and evoke recognizable movie stars like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers or Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell or Mickey and Minnie Mouse, people like that, from the knees down. Toon said, I've seen people on stage try to emulate Rogers and Astaire, and he said it just doesn't work. But he said, if you can give a flavor of what made them so special by showing them just from the knees down, that can work. And so they rigged up this space at the top of the stage with bars and rings so that the dancers could hold on to them. They had something called a spinner where they would lock into this round circular thing that would spin them around. So if they're dancing, instead of doing two or three pirouettes, they could do eight or nine or ten pirouettes. They could literally dance off the floor. They could fly. So just a delicious concept all around. Well, anyway, that show didn't make it. It didn't go beyond that production at the Long Wharf. But near the end of its run, a tune was approached about directing a transfer of a British review called A Day in Hollywood, A Night in Ukraine. This had been a show that was done in a French theater in London and then later transferred to the West End. The second act of it was kind of a burlesque of a Anton Chekhov one act as it might have been performed by the Marx Brothers. And then there was a curtain raiser, which was literally nothing more than people. St- Standing around a piano singing songs Sort of related to Hollywood tune. of course, his imagination Bursting, really made This show, A Day in Hollywood, A Night in Ukraine A kind of little jewel box Of a show, a brilliant little jewel Of a show, and he expanded The first act to be a review About the movies as told by The ushers at Grauman's Chinese Theater
1: Watch Busby's beauties descending the stairs, hundreds of girls doing high kicks, just go to the movies, just go to the flicks.
0: And Tony Walton was back as the set designer, and of course, the ankle stage was the perfect vehicle to evoke dozens and dozens of famous movie stars, movie characters, again, from the knees down. And Walton expanded the ankle stage. He put mirrors in it so it would reflect the, the bottom of the stage so you could see the, like, the footprints, dancing okay. on the footprints in Grauman's Chinese and so forth. So just an ingenious approach to the material.
1: It was, again, such a terrific show, so thrillingly staged and performed. It's part of this thing that happens, Tune is right in the middle of this revival of the review. I say it starts with hair, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think the artists of that period were responding to and rebelling against the Rodgers and Hammerstein model by bringing back the review. seemed like a new way of storytelling by going back to this very old way. And so many of Toon's shows draw on this. The club is literally a review, a thematic one tied together with a thread of concept. The first act of Day in Hollywood is a review. Then the second act is a book musical. Yes, indeed. Did he ever talk about that? Does he have any awareness that this was a different way to make shows than had happened even 10 years earlier?
0: Well, we didn't really talk about it. One of the interesting things about Toon, the thing that makes him such a great artist, is that he would take his approach to the material. And if the material didn't support that approach, then he would try a different approach. That's one of the reasons, again, why I think he is maybe not as well remembered as others is that he didn't have an identifiable style. His style was whatever the show needed. And so he gave Hollywood Ukraine a a kind of review energy. He just knew that that's what it needed. And actually, the next show that he did after Hollywood Ukraine was Cloud Nine. And he actually directed that in much the same way. Way In a kind of review format, with a kind of review energy, the first act is done very much as a kind of vaudeville burlesque staging, and then the second act is done much more naturalistically. Mm -hmm. He used that same approach to two shows that are completely different, couldn't be any more different, but yet they demanded, he felt, that kind of directorial approach.
1: Cloud Nine, I think, put him in a category which most other director choreographers never got to, which is now he's a very successful director of a serious play, a very funny play, but with very serious intent to it. And to have done Whorehouse and then Day in Hollywood and Cloud Nine really positioned him in a very unique way in the world of theater at that moment.
0: Somebody, uh, Walter Kerr, Clive Barnes, I can't remember, someone said, we're used to Tommy Toon as a brilliant director of musicals, now we have to get used to Tommy Toon as a brilliant." brilliant." brilliant director of plays. It really did put him into a a whole other category as a serious artist. I think a lot of times directors of musicals are kind of pigeonholed in that category. Fabulous directors, but it's a musical. It's not a straight play. It's a musical. And he refused to be hemmed in by those artificial boundaries. And he's actually one of the few directors of musicals who had that kind of really serious acclaim for uh, doing a play. Gower Champion did some plays. You could argue that Fossey, with his films, did drama, not just musicals. But this was startling to see someone who's associated with musicals and tap dancing really Direct something with such sensitivity and integrity and intellectual rigor, as you say.
1: And feeding into that, we skipped over it. Maybe we should go back now and pick this up. We knew Tommy Toon as a performer. So he had this whole personality, unlike all these other director choreographers who we really only knew through their staging, except for Gower Champion, of course, who yeah. had a whole career as a performer. But even he didn't have, in my mind, at least, maybe because I was too young to experience that, he didn't have the performance profile that Tommy Toon did, at least at the this point.
0: No. And Tommy even said, I always considered myself a performer first. I somehow got sidetracked into this directing stuff, but he always referred to himself as a performer first. I think it was difficult for him to get cast shows because he's tall. Very tall. He's very a- tall. <laughs> he's- <laughs> he has a a little joke that he's used over the years. He said, instead of saying that I'm six foot six inches tall, I say I'm five feet 18 inches tall. (laughs) That makes me feel a little shorter. It was difficult for him to get cast. He wasn't right for everything. That was one of the reasons that he kind of moved into directing. Another interesting thing about him, he said, because I had so much trouble getting cast, he said, I feel like anybody should be able to play anything. And in Cloud Nine, for instance, women play men, men play women, black people play white people, a doll plays Queen Victoria. He said, anyone should be able to play anything. The women play men in Cloud Nine. It just occurred to me that's a perfect segue into Toon's next show.
1: Exactly. Oh, Take it. us there.
0: So Toon's neighbor was a writer named Mario Fratti, an Italian writer, who was working on a new show with a young composer named Moriesten. And actually Moriestin was hired to do incidental music for Cloud Nine oh, as wow. well. So Toon knew him from that as well. And they'd also we don't need to get into this, but Toon and Mike Nichols and Moriestin were also for a hot minute involved in a, a potential musical of La Caja Fall, which never happened. This is
1: before the Jerry Herman.
0: Before the Jerry Herman, it was a show called The Queen of Basin Street that ended up not happening. So two new Yestons. Anyway, Mario Fratti gave Toon a cassette of the music from Nine. Clear the decks, be alert! We'll clear the decks, we'll be alert! Fix your tie, fix your skirt! We'll fix our tie and skirt! Be prepared to change a foreign coin! And Toon called Mori up and said, I'm really interested, I'd like to be involved in this project. We all know what to do! So they met at Maury Esten's mother's apartment on Central Park South.
1: Eins, zwei, drei, vier,
0: fünf, sechs, sieben, acht, neun, the Germans at the spa, the Germans at the spa. They'll soon be arriving here to spend a lost weekend in Shangri-La. The Germans at the spa descend from German mounts. They come to take the waters with the daughters of Italian counts. How oh, we love to have the Germans at the spa, carefully avoiding any slight faux pas. For the Germans, at the spa, for the Germans, at the spa, for the Germans. Alles must Mori told me, he said, he pulled out a big piece of white drawing paper and he said, I keep hearing it's an orchestra. It's an orchestra surrounding Guido and Guido's conducting. He said, I just see it as an orchestra. be sure there's lots of music
1: played.
0: The show as director-choreographer, and they were planning a workshop. And he said they kept seeing terrific women come in and audition, chief among them, Lillianne Montevecchi. How can she be placed in a movie about an Italian film director? (laughs) So he started to think: why can't everyone on the stage be a woman? Why can't the producer be a woman? Why can't the paparazzi be women? Why can't this person be a woman? This person and he he went to Maury Eston and Arthur Coppett, who was writing the book, and said, I want to cast all the characters with women surrounding Guido. And they didn't like that. And he removed himself from the production for a brief moment. But Yeston and Arthur Coppett came back to him finally and they said, OK, we'll try it, but just for the workshop. And that, of course, is the last time that was ever questioned. The interesting thing about Nine, from my perspective, is that I think when Toon got a hold of it, it was a much more conventional show. And one of the first things he did was insist that Arthur Coppett come in and write the book. Arthur Coppett was a playwright and had recently written a play that was done at the public theater and then transferred to Broadway briefly called Wings about a woman who had had a stroke. And as she tries to regain her use of her body and her speech, it's a play of the mind. It takes place in her mind. And he said, this is what this show needs to be. It takes place in Guido's mind. And he said, Arthur Coppett knows how to do that, so let's bring him in to work on the show. So that was a foundational requirement, as foundational as his decision to cast all women in the show.
1: Well, in a way, they tie together because his mind is obsessed with all these women.
0: Yes, indeed. And there's an ever-present harem attending to his every whim, as one of the lyrics goes. It makes perfect sense.
1: Which is part of his problem. It's interesting because I looked at doing a production of it a few years ago, and there was some discussion about whether this was a sexist show or not and on the surface i understood why people were questioning that but the show results in guido growing up and letting go of that juvenile sexist view of the world that's really what the show's about
0: the last song in the show is growing tall exactly it took until he's 40 years old to do that but he finally does time to go
1: off on my Of us in our place, will be fine.
0: I'll be The world that he created for himself is so heady and luxurious, surrounded by women, and he gives into that. And it's only as he goes through a series of things that happened with his marriage and his memories and so forth. He has a
1: breakdown, basically. He has a
0: breakdown, is able to come out of that and leave it behind. The last image in the show, literally, he leaves that behind.
1: again, a phenomenal production. Yeah. I'm assuming that to research the book, you went to see everything that's recorded at the library and you had access to other video recordings of these shows so you could refresh your memory?
0: Yeah, well for Nine, I have a good friend who was in the original cast of Nine. We'd all done a show together and uh, she got a group of us tickets. I think we saw one of the first previews of Nine and it was one of those shows that whenever friends were in town, I'd take them to see it. If my friend was on for another role, I'd go see it. So I had very vivid memories of that show. Uh, Yes, I went to the Theater on Film and Tape archive at the New York Public Library to catch up on those videotapes of shows that I hadn't seen or to refresh my memory. There's a lot of stuff out there. I had a couple of people, oh, here you're doing a a book about Tommy Toon. Here's a videotape don't tell anyone, but here's a videotape of something. And they'd send me a scratchy tape of something. So there's stuff out there. But I also, as I said earlier, I love doing archival research. So for the nine chapter, I went down to NYU, where Arthur Coppett's papers are, and went through those. That's where I read early drafts of the script by Mario Fratti. I got fabulous, great stuff about casting notes and so forth. That's where I found out they auditioned Sonny Bono to replace <laughs> Ralph Julia in nine, just interesting things. There were written exercises. They asked each of the women who was cast in the show to write an essay about an encounter with Guido because they knew they'd have to establish characterizations very quickly without a lot of dialogue. So he said, this helped us. It helped the costume designer. It helped everyone kind of get a sense of who each of these women was. Really interesting essays by the actresses. So yeah, that was one of the the great joys of writing that chapter was looking at the archival research. And I interviewed Arthur Coppett, who passed away this past year. That was a real opportunity that I was grateful I had.
1: You mentioned the women creating those backstories for themselves brings up the subject of the workshop process. Michael Bennett somewhat invents that, but I feel like Tommy then really latches onto it, and I feel like that's a story told in your book, which we don't hear all that often, of how he uses this workshop process and becomes a major tool that he relies on Mm -hmm. to bring this team of people together to make a show.
0: Indeed. And, you know, the workshop process should be, at its foundation, a real opportunity to explore the material. And that's what they did with nine. It was amorphous enough that it really needed to be workshop. For many of the women, there was no character for them. They sort of had to create those characters themselves. One of my favorite stories in the entire book was told to me by a woman named Laura Kenyon, who was in the show. And she said she was cast as, she said, I was an Italian. I had no character. But she knew Italian cinema, and she knew Fellini, and she knew that Lena Vertmuller, who later became a celebrated director in her own right, Lena Vertmuller had been an assistant director to Fellini on this film. And Lena Vertmuller always wore wild, crazy glasses and look kind of
1: very severe
0: Yes, very severe, very sinister. And she said, I just started wearing glasses and my son had a little toy knife. It was a comb that looked like a knife. And she said, I would just bring it and I'd just kind of walk around and I was a presence. And she said, Lillian Montevecchi and I kind of connected over that. And she said, before I knew it, I had a role as this character who was sort of a bodyguard assistant to Lillian Montevecchi's character. She said at one point, Tommy loved that I did this. At one point, I'm just kind of wandering around and one of the people on stage says, wait a minute, what's Laura Kenyon doing back here? And from the audience, Tommy said, I don't know what Laura Kenyon's doing back there and I hope I never find out. (laughs) And she said, he just let me play. And that's how she came up with that character.
1: I don't think that happens in that way much anymore. I think this whole workshop way of putting on a show has receded to be a memory at this point.
0: Now it's much more structured. The clock is ticking. The money is ticking away. You know, this was 40 years ago. It seems a lifetime ago. I think it's a different environment today.
1: So the next show, he doesn't use the workshop process, and maybe they should have, but this show was about him being a performer. and It started off with him as the star rather than as the creator of the show. It's one of the great sagas, I think, of the rocky road to Broadway. I love that you compare it to the movie of The Bandwagon because the parallel is so direct. I never thought of that before, but just the way you describe The Bandwagon and then you say it's also what happened with My One and Only. It was really amazing.
0: The story of My One and Only is one of the great theatrical backstage stories of the end of the 20th century. I mean, it really was quite a saga.
1: Unfortunately, you're going to have to wait for the next episode of Broadway Nation to hear the incredible story of all the backstage drama of my one and only, as well as the making of Grand Hotel, The Will Rogers Follies, and more, as I continue my conversation with Kevin Winkler, author of the new book, Everything is Choreography, the musical theater of Tommy Toon. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered, and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vash on Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Look, it's Guido Contini! Oh Contini.
0: Reporters!
1: Guido, Guido Contini is here at the spot!